0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you this morning, humbled, understanding our utter dependence upon you for all things, life and salvation. You, the only independent one. Uh, We're so needy. We need things like power and electricity, to heat our coffee, to set us on the right track. And when we don't have it, we're all out of sorts. Regular reminders that the space between life and death for us is is very thin. But you hold our hand. You hold our lives and we thank you, be with us now as we come to your word. Strengthen us, cause us, Lord, to grow in our love for Jesus Christ, and we ask that you would use our time together in your word to work towards that end. For your glory and our joy, amen. Amen. Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary to China in the mid to late 1800s, after suffering immensely for the sake of Christ, after having lost wives and children to death and receiving poor treatment himself, enduring really when you look at his life, one hardship after another, he was quoted as saying, I never made a sacrifice. How's that possible? I mean, after all of the suffering, well, I think the reason for this is because of the truth that we find proclaimed in our text this morning. So if you would like, turn with me to Matthew 13, 44 to 46. We're going to be looking at these two parables, and we're going to see what I believe was the true foundation or the motivation that fueled Hudson Taylor's life and many others. Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Jesus says there in verse 44, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. He, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So we see Jesus uh, tells these two parables, seemingly in private. Both parables essentially are teaching the same kingdom truth, but from slightly different angles. The first first parable describes a scene where a man found a treasure hidden in a field. That might sound strange to our modern ears because most of us don't bury our treasure in the backyard, but I think we might be better off if we did. (laughs) But in the land of Palestine, the first century, I'm told this would not have seemed completely strange. It was somewhat common for people to bury their treasure for safekeeping. We can understand that. But anyhow, the man finds a treasure and then responds by departing with joy Selling all that he has, buying that field, the kingdom of heaven is like this. That is, to say, the kingdom of heaven is like the situation that has just been described. The second parable is very similar, but with these few minor differences. First, it's interesting to note that the earlier parable highlights a man who stumbled onto the treasure, where the second parable highlights a man who is in the business, so to speak, of, of searching for treasure. He's a merchant. And he's looking for valuable and priceless pearls. And so seeking or or not seeking both see the value in the treasure once it has been discovered, once it has been found. And second, um, that second parable, the text there doesn't say the merchant went away with joy. But I think that it's implied because he too immediately departs, sells all he has, buys that pearl. The moral of the story, I think, is this. The kingdom of heaven is so valuable that it's worth sacrificing everything and anything in order to gain it. Now some people try to look at this parable and allegorize it. So you have those who would say that the first parable likens Jesus to the man looking for the treasure and the treasure is Israel. The second parable, some say Jesus is the merchant. The pearl is the church. But I think trying to allegorize the parables in this way really flirts with disaster. For example, in the first parable, the treasure is worth more than what The price was paid for the treasure. And as D.A. Carson has pointed out, if Israel is the treasure and Jesus is the man who sacrifices all to gain it, then we would have to say that the price Jesus paid was worth less than the treasure of Israel. So that's the problem with allegorizing uh, parables in that way, especially when there's not a very clear explanation of the meaning of the parable. Uh, So clearly, though, I think our main point stands uh, as we see this truth taught throughout the rest of the New Testament. The kingdom of heaven is so valuable that it's worth sacrificing everything and anything in order to gain it. Now, as we seek to apply this parable to life, I think it's important for us to understand this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. So let's answer that question. What is the kingdom of heaven? Stephen Wellum, who I know many of you appreciate, explains the phrase as referring to God's kingly rule as it is especially tied to God's saving reign. Right, so God's kingly rule as it is especially tied to God's saving reign. And he gets there by taking a look at the kingdom in the Old Testament, and he notes how God, as the sovereign creator, rules over all things. And so in that sense, everything God has created belongs to his kingdom, and he rules over all. But then the fall happens. Genesis 3 happens. God's still sovereign. He still rules over all. But what has changed is that the people reject his reign. They don't submit to his rule and to his reign any longer. And so they forfeit their relationship with him. That then sets the stage for God to come and redeem a people for himself. And so you have Abraham. And he's given that promise that through his offspring, all the nations will be blessed. Then God chooses Israel as his special people. And then the Davidic kings come along to administer, in one sense, God's kingdom on earth. But after reading through the kings, we see that they fail. Yet in all this, the Old Testament prophets speak of a hope in a future king who's going to come and establish a new covenant, an eternal kingdom. And this king won't fail. All that brings us to the book of Matthew. Jesus is that king. He is that long-awaited Messiah told throughout the entire Old Testament who through and by his life, death, and resurrection inaugurates the kingdom of heaven, which is to be fully realized at his second coming. At which time, all men will once again submit to God's rule and reign, whether willingly or unwillingly. So that's, I think, a bit about how we should think of the kingdom and how it relates to God's sovereignty over all things. Okay, now just a little bit about the distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, those two phrases. So the Gospels of Mark and Luke frequently mention the kingdom of God. and They use that phrase several times. Matthew, to my knowledge, is the only Gospel that uses that phrase, the kingdom of heaven. The others don't. And then the Gospel of John, he uses uh, the kingdom of God only once or maybe twice, but I think just once. And he seems to instead prefer the phrase eternal life instead. But John's not the only one that uses that phrase, eternal life. So if you would, with me, flip over to Matthew 19, the text that Randall read earlier today. Matthew 19, there in verse 16, Matthew records Jesus' conversation with the rich young man. Behold, the man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So the man asks how he can gain eternal life. And then in verse 21, Jesus ultimately tells him to go sell all he has, give to the poor, then you will have treasure in heaven. The man is rich, apparently does not want to comply with Jesus' demand, and so he goes away sad. Then Jesus tells the disciples in verse 23, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that interesting? The man comes asking about eternal life. Jesus turns around and tells him to sell all, and he'll receive not eternal life, but treasure in heaven. And then later, Jesus tells his disciples, in reference to the young man's answer, that it's hard for the rich to enter not eternal life, but the kingdom of heaven. And then, in the very next verse, Jesus explains how it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then finally, Peter asks about his own sacrifice to follow Jesus. And he's told in verse 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So all that to show how here in one passage we have eternal life treasure in heaven, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, all used seemingly interchangeably, or at least we would have to admit with significant serious overlap. And at a minimum, I think what we're seeing is that eternal life awaits all those who inherit, who belong to the kingdom of heaven, those two being stuck together. Now, hold that thought for a minute and, and, and then just listen to this definition of eternal life given in John 17:3. Jesus is praying to the Father and says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ, that is eternal life. The original word used there in John 17, 3, to know is is to know in the sense to truly understand the underlying realities associated with the object of the knowledge. to truly understand the underlying realities associated with the object of the knowledge. It's it's a knowledge that necessarily results in obedience. It's It's an intimate knowledge that denotes a relationship and elicits a response. To know God, to know Jesus Christ, is eternal life. So let me ask you another question. Why is gaining the kingdom of heaven so valuable? Why then is gaining the kingdom of heaven so valuable? That's an important question for us to understand if we're going to be able to apply our parable. Remember the main point. The kingdom of heaven is so valuable that it's worth sacrificing everything and anything in order to gain it. So the the parable clearly portrays the extreme and utter value of the kingdom. But then why is that so valuable? Well, if we can see how eternal life and the kingdom of heaven are interrelated, then we can see how entering the kingdom of heaven necessarily results in eternal life. Those two go together. Uh, They're they're bound. You can't separate the two. Uh, They don't both mean the same thing, but, but one is found in the other. That's why I took pains to walk through the Matthew 19 text. So then we can ask, why then is eternal life so valuable if it's worth sacrificing everything in order to gain it? Well, first of all, eternal life is so valuable because, as we just learned in that John 17 text, the benefit is that we get to know God. We get to know Jesus Christ. We could have this intimate relationship with the one who made the entire universe. This requires forgiveness of sins. It requires propitiation. It requires the appeasement of God's wrath that is necessarily upon unrighteous, unholy sinners. And so this relationship, this knowledge of God, entails reconciliation We're no longer alienated from our creator God. We are under his rule and reign. Brothers and sisters, this is marvelous truth. Because of our salvation, we can now freely and righteously commune with our creator God. Our consciences are clear. We can live guilt-free lives before our king without shame. But we can think back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis 3, they hid themselves in shame because of their sin. They hid themselves from God. They didn't want to come near him, they hid themselves. But Hebrews 4.16 encourages us to draw near with confidence, boldness to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Isn't that wonderful? And then Jeremiah 31.34 proclaims, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor saying, know Yahweh, know the Lord, for they shall all know me From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I'll remember their sins no more. What is needed for this relationship, what is needed to know God, sins need to be forgiven. But there we see that prophecy at least partially fulfilled in us. Um, Our sins have been forgiven. We get to know God. Uh, Those who confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead are forgiven and are blessed with knowing God having this intimate relationship with him. And then further, the kingdom of heaven, which we're likening to eternal life, is so valuable because of our position with God. So I think we could also talk about our justification. We have been declared not guilty in the courts of heaven for our high treason. Jesus is the one who received the penalty for our sins. We're no longer doomed to destruction. We've been saved through faith in him. We could also talk about our sanctification. We are no longer slaves to sin. On this side of salvation, we are now able not to sin. We could talk about our glorification. Because we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we will one day be made perfect. Can't be a a citizen of heaven unless your sins have been forgiven. There's a day coming when death is going to be no more and and sin will be no more. There'll be no more crying or pain. We're going to receive glorified bodies and we're going to see Jesus face to face. Eternal communion with God and his people. Unspeakable riches and joy await those who place their trust in Jesus Christ. So that's just kind of a quick overview of some of the value of the kingdom of heaven, of eternal life, of having a relationship with our creator God, with Jesus Christ. It's priceless. But now we need to ask another question what then should my response be to entering or to gaining the kingdom of heaven or eternal life? In both of the parables, uh, the response to the value of the object was nearly identical. After recognizing the value of the object, both men depart, sell all I have by the object. The one buys the field with the treasure, the other buys the precious pearl. I think it's helpful to point out here that in the Greek text, the all is emphatic. Uh, so in Hebrew, thought, emphasis was ty- typically conveyed by repetition. Uh, the New Testament writers were, were Hebrews, so they're Thinking this way, and we see this throughout the Old Testament, and we see it here. Uh, the Greek text follows the same for- formula for both of the parables. Young's literal translation of the Bible puts it this way. He hath sold all as much as he had. There's the redundancy, the repetition, the emphaticness of it. He hath sold all as much as he had and bought it. Okay, all that to say is that both parables are emphasizing the fact that the men sold every single last possession that they owned in order to obtain the prize which is the kingdom of heaven, to include eternal life. Therefore, our response to gaining the kingdom is to be nothing less than grace-empowered, radical, loving discipleship. Grace-empowered, radical, loving discipleship. Titus 2.11 speaks of grace-empowered nature of that. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all People training them, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age. So God's grace in and through Jesus Christ saves us and God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So God's grace saves us and God's grace trains us. And so our response to entering the kingdom is to be grace-empowered discipleship. Uh, We are dependent upon God's grace for strength and guidance to radically and lovingly follow Jesus Christ in discipleship, in obedience. And in our text this morning, I think that that grace is implied. It's implied because of the nature of parables. Parables require grace in order to understand them. That phrase that you hear over and over in Matthew in connection with the parables is this, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That phrase implies grace. We need God's unmerited favor. We need uh, his unmerited favor to understand. We need the Spirit's help to help us see the utter value of the kingdom. He has to give us eyes to see. He must save us and redeem us. If we don't recognize this wonder, then we're never going to follow Jesus in radical, loving discipleship. So the man found the treasure, then went away with joy, sold all he had. And so selling all to obtain the kingdom is the path to ultimate joy. We need to trust this word. We need to see this clearly. And when we see this, then we're going to follow Jesus radically. I think we could say we will then follow him completely or absolutely. Look with me again to Matthew 19 if you're still there. Look at what Jesus demands of the rich young man. The man asks him for eternal life. He believes that he's kept all the commandments. Jesus then tells him in verse 21, if you would be perfect go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. You see, Jesus called this man to a life of radical discipleship and sadly he declined. He didn't have eyes to see the value of the kingdom. He didn't want to let go of his possessions. He thought that he obeyed the commandments, but he hadn't obeyed the one commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. So this life of discipleship is, is grace and, and power, as we said, but it's no less radical. Jesus said in Luke 14, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus calls his disciples to renounce all that they have. I think those who recently become members and are looking towards baptism, and those who have recently been baptized should pay heed to these texts. Sometimes we like to tone down Jesus' words and say, well, he doesn't really demand that everyone sell all that they have and give to the poor, but here in Luke 40, 14, Jesus says, any one of you who? It's indefinite. It's something that applies to all. All of Jesus' disciples are to renounce all that they have, otherwise they cannot be his disciples. Again, Titus 2.11 reminds us that God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We're to renounce worldly passions as we seek to follow Christ. What are worldly passions? What does the world live for? What what things does the world love? I made a short list for us here. I think we would agree that the world loves nice houses, nice cars, bank accounts, IRAs, prestige, power, Money, pleasure, comfort, lavish vacations, sex, a life of ease, security, autonomy, so forth. Now ask yourself the question, do I love these things? That is to say, am I ruled by these things? When I come to a fork in the road and I have an option to go left or right, am I ruled by the same things that the world is ruled by? Do I look to these things for my ultimate joy and satisfaction? That's to love them. Bank accounts, pleasure, peace, comfort, sex, lavish vacations, a life of ease. See, we've seen in this parable that the kingdom is so valuable that it's worth sacrificing all we have in order to gain it. We looked at these two other passages where Jesus clearly proclaims that in order to follow him, one must give up everything. Is he exaggerating? Remember what Paul said in Philippians 3, 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. does that sound a lot like our two parables? Like maybe... Paul has heard them before. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for his sake I suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I might gain. If Jesus was simply using hyperbole and didn't really mean for the disciples to get all radical about Following him, then poor Paul didn't get the memo. And neither did the rest of the apostles in the book of Acts. And neither did any of the other believers in the book of Acts get the memo. Jesus' disciples are to renounce all. The glory of his person demands that. But back to my earlier question, do I love what the world loves? How do I know if I do Or if I don't, there's one sure way to find out. Give it up. Give it up. Okay, so it's true that Jesus doesn't ask every single disciple to sell all they have and give to the poor. He asks this rich young man, but he doesn't ask that of every every disciple. But he does require that every disciple be willing to sell all and to give to the poor to reckon all things as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. That's renouncing all, that's denying self. In the 1950s, Jim Elliot was a missionary to the Indians of Ecuador, and he's famous for writing in his journal, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He was zealous for his king and ended up selling all. On January 8, 1956, Jim Elliot and four other men met up with the feared Aka Indians, the missionaries had previously established some friendly contact and were eagerly awaiting the moment when they could share Christ, share the gospel with these lost and perishing souls. That day never came. Jim Elliott and the rest were brutally murdered later that same day. Jim's body was found downriver mutilated. He left a wife of three years, a baby girl, and the prestige of a gifted intellect. Elizabeth Elliott said of her husband, Jim's aim was to know God. Jim himself wrote in his journal, Lord, make my way prosperous. Not that I achieve high station, but that my life may be an exhibit to the value of knowing God. You see, Jim Elliott saw the value of the kingdom of heaven. He saw the value of eternal life. He saw the value of knowing Jesus Christ. And so he responded rightly to that reality by selling all. So dream with me here for a a minute. Since this is true, since the kingdom of heaven, eternal life, knowing Jesus Christ is so valuable that it's worth sacrificing all we have in order to gain it, how should our lives then reflect this truth? What What would selling all look like in your particular situation would it be an all-out reckless abandonment for the kingdom living with no regrets in this life how about loving god with all one's heart loving jesus supremely not things not peace not comfort not pleasure but jesus If the kingdom were most valuable, then perhaps we would not worry about material things. Maybe it would include loving God with all of your body, purity. Maybe you wouldn't complain about the weather or the traffic or your boss or your in-laws. Where you walk, live, eat, dress, everything that you do, sex, hobbies, so on and so forth, would all be used for the king and his glory. Maybe you would love God with all of your resources, your money, your family, your property, your education, your relationships, your time. You'd see all of these things as being things that are at the disposal of the kingdom, holding them all with open hand. Now, maybe someone's listening to all this and saying, well, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's a bit over the top, God gave us all things to enjoy, and uh, they're right. 1 Timothy 6 says, As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. But most of the time we stop there, so let's keep reading. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share holding things with an open hand, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Sounds a lot like our text again. So we don't have to sell everything, but we are to be willing to give it all away, to be generous, to hold it with an open hand in order to take hold of that which is truly life. Isn't that interesting? Maybe you're here listening to this and thinking, well, not everyone needs to go and do what Jamelia did. And in fact, I think that what he did was rather irresponsible. He had a child and wife to support, take care of. He didn't fulfill his biblical responsibilities. We're not going to get too radical, too crazy. Look what happened there. Not everyone is called to be radical, to be sold out, to be completely In for the kingdom. If that's you, just let me remind you that one day you're going to die. In 50 years, maybe 70 years, not very many of us in this room are going to be around. That's not a very long time. So, how would you like to die? But I would agree the value in the kingdom doesn't require becoming a martyr for the kingdom. In fact, valuing the kingdom isn't about what you do, but about where you seek your joy. It's about who you know. You see, the rich young ruler's problem wasn't that he didn't have the willpower to sell all and give to the poor. His problem wasn't that he lacked the courage just be all radical that wasn't his problem his problem was that he couldn't see the value of the kingdom that was his problem his problem was that he didn't have eyes to see Jesus for who he really was the messiah the king of kings the lord of lords very god of very god that's the one who was talking to him and so he couldn't let go of his possessions You see, letting go of his possessions, radical living, is the fruit, not the root. The root is knowing God, seeing Jesus for who he he truly is. Had he known who it was who was speaking to him, the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that's who's talking to him. That's the one who asked him and told him, Go sell all you have, give to the poor. Had he known who that was, he would have gladly given up his possessions and trusted the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, to fully compensate him in the next life. But he didn't know. Had he known, he would have obeyed Jesus and sold all. He would have given to the poor. And he would have seen that this was his extreme joy. He would have been like the man in the parable once they discovered it, once they found it, once they understood, then they would have went. He would have went. And in his joy, sold all. I believe this explains Jim Elliot's life and and, and how he lived it. Did you notice in the quote I read earlier how he wanted his life to exhibit the value of knowing God? (coughs) Knowing God, as we already said, is eternal life. Eternal life is to know God and his son, Jesus Christ, Jim Elliot understood that his challenge wasn't in what he did or in what he didn't do, but in who he he knew and and in what he valued. He understood that 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 was everything. And he knew and understood that he needed help in, in seeing Jesus as his supreme joy, not only at the moment of salvation, but every day thereafter. And that's why I think this parable is a little bit confusing when we talk about it. It's like, yeah, we respond by selling all to gain the kingdom. But selling all doesn't gain us the kingdom. Seeing Jesus, God giving us a new heart, gains us the kingdom, but yet we're to sell all. And if we don't sell all, we haven't gained the kingdom. This is something that happens at the moment of salvation. We're given a new heart. We're given eyes to see Jesus for who he clearly is. The righteous, natural response to that glory is to go sell all. So no, we don't have to all be missionaries. and move to Africa and start orphanages. Some will, some won't. But we all do need to value the kingdom above all else. And when we do, it will bear kingdom fruit. Which involves prioritizing this communion, this relationship. But if knowing God through Jesus is eternal life, then the heart that sees this is going to, to long to build that relationship through at least the means of grace of prayer and Bible reading the fellowship of the saints, right? They're going to organize their lives in such a way that they're going to prioritize that communion. You know, if we could care less about reading the word to know and understand Jesus Christ and and his life, death, and resurrection in, in a deeper way, and if prayer to us is a chore, like mowing the yard, something we just got to do before our day starts, then something's seriously wrong in our hearts. We're not valuing the kingdom, and we're in a dangerous place spiritually. But not only are we going to Uh prioritize communion, we're going to also prize that communion. Knowing God is going to drive this person. It's going to motivate everything that they do. To be known by God and to know God is going to be their highest aim in life, their greatest treasure. They're going to prize and guard and protect this relationship above all, and they're going to see this as their greatest joy. And so then naturally they'll pursue this communion. They're going to passionately and zealously pursue Jesus. He is their joy. He's going to be their primary pursuit in this life. That's what Paul is getting at in that Philippians 3 text. Jesus is our salvation. He is the king of the heavenly kingdom. Knowing him, learning his ways are the natural overflow of valuing the kingdom. So Paul naturally says in verse 10 that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. It's pretty radical sounding to me. And so the natural response to knowing God, the root, is finding our joy in Jesus, the fruit. And that results in loving obedience. And let me just briefly illustrate this by revisiting the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, the Sermon on the Mount begins in Matthew 5 with what we call the Beatitudes. In verses 10 through 12, we see that kingdom citizens, true followers of Jesus, those who value the kingdom, are blessed when they suffer for Jesus' namesake. You see, when believers suffer for the kingdom with joy, they show the world that they were living for eternity. They show the world the sheer value of the kingdom. They confront the world with the value of knowing Jesus. We talked earlier about what the world values, and I asked if we valued those same things, and then how do we know if we value the same things that the world values? You see, when believers suffer persecution for identifying with Jesus Christ, it's a blessing because they learn that Jesus is indeed their extreme joy. That's why that's a blessing. They see that they were willing to sell all. Their faith is genuine, and not that it's about them, but they rejoice in the grace that they see in their own lives, that miracle, and in the lives of others who also endure persecution for Jesus' namesake. It reminds them. It encourages them that the gospel is true. So we don't worship Jim Elliot. But we do rejoice at the obvious grace of God in his life that caused him to suffer joyfully, to lay it all in line for Jesus' name. That's why when we read those biographies, we're so encouraged. We read those and go, okay, I knew Jesus was valuable. And here's another reminder. Here's a guy who gave his life up because he saw the value of the kingdom. And we rejoice in the fact that the world was confronted by a man whose life exhibited the value of knowing God. So when we suffer for Jesus' sake, we also can rejoice over the grace of God in our own lives and in the opportunity that we have to display our king's value. Because if we value the kingdom above all, then our highest aim in any situation is going to be to make his name famous. And his name isn't made famous by recanting our faith under persecution. So, then moving through the Sermon on the Mount, we come to verse 27. Jesus is explaining there how those in the kingdom will deal radically with sin, and the particular sin here is lust. We talked about this last fall, but because of our demographic here at Kenwood, I think it's worth repeating briefly. But he says there, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. What's he getting at? Well, remember, the person who sees the value of the kingdom finds their ultimate joy in Jesus, in the relationship. And the kingdom citizen, then, understands that sin messes with their communion with God. And They don't lose their salvation, but when a man looks at pornography, for example, his relational enjoyment of God diminishes. Sin messes with our enjoyment of Jesus Christ on a relational level. And so if we see, if we know the value of the kingdom then we're going to deal radically with sin in our lives. We're going to metaphorically gouge out our eyes and toss them far from us. The Puritan Thomas Watson writes, if we are prizers of Christ, then we will part with our dearest pleasures for him. He who sets a high value on Christ will part with his pride, unjust gain, and sinful fashions. He will set his feet on the neck of his sins. Whatever it takes. And so brothers, if you see the value of the kingdom, if you value eternal life, and if you see and understand that your ultimate joy is in Jesus and in that relationship with him that you enjoy, then this teaching of Christ here in Matthew 5 makes complete and absolute sense. If I value the kingdom and I know that my joy is found in knowing him, and if I know that looking at pornography in the computer is going to diminish that joy, then why in the world would I not do something radical about it? Jesus says here that you will, if you value the kingdom, if you have eyes to see, if your faith is genuine. That's why there's this warning here about hell. If the images on on your computer screen cause you to sin and you're unwilling to throw the computer away because you don't wanna be inconvenienced, then maybe you need to fear hell. Okay, so it's not that I have to follow this legalistic set of, of rules, you know, can't do this, can't do that, can't watch rated R movies. That heart misses it altogether. What Jesus is saying is that the person who sees him clearly values the kingdom, values the relationship with Christ, and so doesn't even want to watch that filth. Does watching those things increase your joy in Jesus? Does that draw you near to your joy, to your treasure? Does that display the value of knowing God in your life? Don't fool yourself. If you value the kingdom, you will deal radically with sin and your lifestyle will proclaim the extreme worth of eternal life in an increasing measure. And that really goes the same for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. We love our enemies. We do good to them. We pray for our persecutors, not because we're masochists or something like that, but because our desires have changed. We've been given new hearts. We want different things now. We look at the world through a different lens. We, when, when we love our enemies, we show the world the value of knowing our king. In fact, we show the world we're not of this world anymore. Uh, we were once enemies ourselves. And in that rebellious state, Jesus died in our stead, took our death penalty. If I believe that truth truly, and not just give it lip service, but if I truly believe that, then I'm going to gladly and joyfully love my enemies in the hopes that they'll see Jesus in me and so value him as well. That exalts my King, my Savior. You see, my desires have been changed. I've been given a new heart, new desires, new wants. That's the Sermon on the Mount. We cannot prize Christ at too high a rate, Thomas Watson goes on to say. We may prize other things above their value, but we cannot raise our esteem of Christ high enough He is beyond all value. You see, when we sin, we bought into the lie, at least momentarily, that the sin is going to bring us greater joy than Jesus and his kingdom. That's a lie. And so, obviously, we need God's grace to see the utter value of the kingdom. Our our prayers really ought to be, Lord, help me see the value of your kingdom. Help me to know the joy that's bound up in my relationship with Jesus Christ, not only at the moment of salvation, but every day thereafter. That ought to be our prayer, more so maybe than, Lord, help me to obey. Because if that's our prayer and that's our heart, then obedience is going to be easy. Suffering for the name is going to be a walk in a park then. Then we'll put away worry. Then we'll put away complaining and grumbling. Pagans, those who don't know Jesus, they chase after material possessions. They worry about bank accounts. They complain about the weather and so forth because they don't know God. They don't go and sell all. But but we, those who embrace the gospel, we are those who seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness because that's where our joy is located. Christians are those who see the value of the kingdom. Brothers, sisters, you've been given eyes to see, ears to hear. You know Jesus. Sell all. Count everything as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Value your relationship with Jesus above all that you value, regardless of the cost. By God's grace, strive to live a life that is consistent with the value of that treasure. Excel still more. And you're going to say, at the end of your life, right along with Hudson Taylor, I never made a sacrifice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful that for those of us who are in Christ, understand this parable. You've given us eyes to see and ears to hear. You have caused our hearts to see the value of knowing the glories, the joys, the treasures of being in relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you for that. We're so glad it's not our performance that saves us, but Christ. Yet we do long to live lives that point to and proclaim the value of knowing Jesus. And in that, we need your help day in and day out. Encourage us in that. Lord, help us to be good examples for each other in this particular way. And if, those, if there's here some of those here this morning who do not know you, who don't see the value of Jesus and so are unwilling to obey Jesus, I ask, Lord, that you would use this word and the rest of our time here to give them eyes to see and grant them repentance. For your glory and our joy, amen.